Welcome back to Uproar, friends. This is season two of our stories from students conspiring for goodness from the heart of Detroit, Michigan. Today's interview is with friends from G's Magazine on their hospitality edition. This podcast and all the ministries of Motor City Wesley are made possible by patrons like you. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support students in creativity, community, and conspiracy. And we hope you'll join us. MotorCityWesley.org. Here's the interview. Uh, everybody, thank you for being here with us today. We're going to be recording this podcast with uh, some of the folks from G's Magazine. Uh, my name's Carl, and I work with Motor City Wesley. We want to give a shout out to our Loyola friends that are here today. Woo! Uh, we want to give a shout out to all our gamers uh, down the other end of the building. They uh, have taught me uh, about the philanthropy of gaming over the past three or four weeks, which is amazing, and I want to look into more. Uh, but I want to throw this to Lydia Wiley Kellerman, and she's going to lead us through um, kind of an exploration of this uh, particular issue of G's Magazine on hospitality. Lydia, thanks for being with us. Thank you, and I'm actually going to throw a ticket to Gary Boucher. <laughs> Uh, hello, I'm Kateri Boucher. I'm the associate editor and circulation manager for G's Magazine. And just want to say welcome to you all. I'm especially grateful to be hosting the Loyola students um, for the week. They're here doing a spring break immersion um, and doing all sorts of things around the city, staying at the Catholic Worker House. Um, so welcome to everyone, all you listeners, wherever you're tuning in from. Hope you can take a moment to just get grounded wherever you are. And I'm uh, first going to start out by talking, asking uh, my coworkers a little bit about G's Magazine. So Lucy, if you could uh, start by just telling us what is G's, um, take it from there. Sure. Um, so G's is a nonprofit ad-free quarterly print magazine um, that covers the intersection of faith, art, and activism. Um, so one of our goals is to connect social justice-minded people across the world. So we're, um, we were originally based in Canada, we recently moved to Detroit, um, but it's always been a very North American publication. Um, and we, our circulation covers all across uh, the U.S. and Canada primarily. Um, so that's our goal. There's a lot of ways to feel lonely when you feel like you're the only one that really cares about an issue or how do you fight for something when you don't feel like the people next to you are ready to. And so this magazine comes to your doorstep and gives you hope, finds ways to connect, finds other people who, um, who feel similarly and want to take action, whether it be something small in your neighborhood or something big that you travel to. Um, so that's a little bit about us. Thank you, Lucy. And like Lucy said, uh, we're a quarterly magazine. Each issue is a different theme. Um, and our most recent issue that just came out this winter is on hospitality. It's called Entertaining Angels. Those of you here have it in your hands. And uh, Lydia, could you just tell us a little bit more about this issue? Yeah, we began working on this issue um, coming out of working on our climate justice issue. And I think that all of us left that issue feeling a lot of grief um, and maybe some anxiety about um, everything that we're seeing in around the climate crisis right now, from extinction possibilities to animals and creatures that are currently um, already facing extinction, um, and also the way that climate catastrophe is increasing the refugees that are moving all around the world right now, and knowing that that's just going to get um, more intense as we go forward. And so 
we came away thinking a lot about a lot of the work that we needed to do around the climate crisis. Um, but one of those things in particularly seems as climate refugees increase, we want to think more and more about how do all of us open the spaces that we have to strangers who are in need. Um, and when that time comes, how do we be ready? How do we practice the muscles of hospitality now so that when we're in crisis, um, those muscles move easily? It also came at a time when, in our country, children are being held in cages and when walls are being built on our borders. And so it felt like a real time where we need some humanity and we need to be doing the radical act of welcome. Um, so really this issue focused on how do we welcome our readers with stories, how do we honor folks who've been doing hospitality for decades, um, and also challenging all of us to um, exercise our own muscles of hospitality more deeply. Um, so our issue began with a piece by Antonio Cosme um, that grounded us in the history um, of the land and the peoples in this city in Detroit where the magazine comes out from. Um, and part of that for us was acknowledging as white editors um, and particularly for readers who identify as white knowing that our own um, ancestral stories are part of being the very worst kind of guest that one can be when entering um, a land. And so wanting to acknowledge that and naming that that's part of our, um, part of my work right now. And so really grateful to be grounded in that piece. So we're really grateful to have Antonio here today um, and to introduce him briefly. He's an activist and an economist and an artist and an educator and a beekeeper <laughs> and a gardener uh, in southwest Detroit. Um, and when I think a lot about what our communities should be doing right now, we need to be learners and resistors and creators. Um, and somehow Antonio has found a way to embody all of those things, that he is truly a scholar um, and an activist and a creator from everything from art to gardens. Um, so I'm really grateful that he is in my neighborhood and uh, a teacher for us and to have him here today. Um, so maybe, Antonio, if you can start just by telling us a little bit more about who you are yeah. and the work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, my name is Antonio Cosme. Um, from southwest Detroit. I'm a Boricua in Coahuiltecan. Um, so my, my mom is from Detroit. Her parents are from Puerto Rico. My dad is from San Antonio. Um, I just came back from a ceremony down there. It was my first time touching base in like my ancestral sort of indigenous homelands in southern Texas, and that was like a really powerful thing for me. Um, I think uh, I was I graduated Detroit in 2012 when Detroit was going into bankruptcy, um, and I had an economics degree, and I had studied a lot about uh, Latin America in the role the United States has with Latin America. If you don't know, I would check out the book Harvest of Empire by Juan Gonzalez or um, another good book is um, Open Veins of Latin America. Um, but coming to understand the economic sort of philosophy that the United States was pushing on the world, and particularly starting with Latin America, really opened my eyes to the same sort of parallel philosophies being pushed on Detroit at the time during bankruptcy. And uh, that kind of really began my period of activism. I did a lot of popular education work, a lot of writing, a lot of activism around those issues. I kind of got burnt out 
Uh, I got arrested for painting this water tower. Um, and then I kind of switched over from art, activism, popular education to ecological work. Uh, a lot of my work is nestled in that area now. I, I work for the National Wildlife Federation today. I run an after-school program where I take kids outdoors, connect them with nature. I do a lot of projects around the Great Lakes with uh, inter-indigenous communities. One of the projects that we were just discussing that um, I've initiated here in Detroit is the Detroit Sugar Bush, where we're harvesting maple syrup. Um, we just had like native folks from the UP come down to help teach us how to do that. So uh, I think there's a lot of um, beauty and knowledge and understanding. Like we are, as Americans are suffer from a deep, 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 deep historical amnesia. And worse than a historical amnesia, we suffer from propaganda that attempts to make us identify with whiteness and this American land as if it's like our indigenous place of ancestry. Um, and I think those are like really, it's whiteness is a destructive identity and it's part of like a colonial legacy that I think needs undoing. Uh, and I think a lot of my work in education circles around that. I think we all, I think honestly whiteness robs a lot of European people of their ancestry, of the responsibility and privilege of getting to know who you are and where you come from. Um, and gives you a false sense of identity with this place. Um, and yeah, that's just my opening. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, we're wondering where, um, Jeez is a print magazine and we believe in the, the power of having text in front of you um, in your in your hand uh, but we also are experimenting a lot with what it the added gift of getting to hear authors read those words so if you wouldn't mind beginning by reading the piece that you wrote yeah. for us in Jeez. cool so overall it's a reflection on this project that we did in Detroit uh, ending Columbus Day creating indigenous people's day and renaming the city and how we have to like recognize that that's superficial and like it's the deeper understanding of this place that's going to be truly change, changing people's lives and thoughts. Okay. So knowing the history of the land is knowing indigenous history. On Indigenous Peoples Day, the Detroit Indigenous Peoples Alliance passed a resolution in city council renaming Detroit Wawiatanong, a word that articulates Detroit to the water. Differences in the European language and Anishinaabe Moan language demonstrate the diverging approaches towards nature. Many Latin-based languages differentiate nouns by gender. Anishinaabe Moan differentiates by animate and inanimate. Trees, rivers, animals, rocks too, are animate objects with life and spirit, while man-made objects are inanimate. This is how we got to 410 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere, a society that commodifies and destroys the sacred, worshiping the inanimate. Renaming Detroit one day of the year does not elucidate all of this history, but a vital first step is acknowledging this special place had a name before Antoine de Moth Cadillac came here a mere 418 or 318 years ago. Wawiatanong has been a central meeting place for the Great Lakes indigenous peoples, including the Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe, which include the Odawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi. The Wendat and Iroquoian agricultural peoples living in permanent settlements around Lake Erie called the Detroit area Tucha Grande, or land of many beavers. Beavers build wetlands that teem with life, creating critical habitat for fish, waterfowl, and 85% of North America's wildlife species. Wetlands purify polluted waters, keep nutrients in the ecosystem, and check the destructive powers of floods and storms. 
Beavers, once sacred, became a commodity to the French, who traded their furs to supply Europeans' fashion-driven demands. The French desire to control the fur trade led to their settlement of Detroit in 1701, as Cadillac, the colonial governor, attempted to fend off British settlers and monopolize the fur market. By 1760, Detroit was ceded to the British, who attempted to appease natives by restricting colonial settlement in the coveted, fecund, Midwestern soils. The American Revolutionary War was fought, in part, to secure American settlers' access to the Great Lakes in Ohio. However, the mosquito-laden wetlands that dominated southeast Michigan prevented settlement. Detroit remained a tiny trade post until Lake, the Lake Erie Canal connected New York to the city. Then Detroit's population exploded from 2,000 to 2 million in 100 years. The term drain the swamp, employed by the U.S.'s contemporary climate change denying idiot leader Donald Trump, is among the most colonial of idioms. Upwards of 90% of the wetlands in the coastal southeast Michigan were drained away uh, for lumber processing, uh, industry, and people. The wetlands' ecological benefits were lost, and the straits would never be the same. Michigan's industrial legacy began on the stumps of Michigan's great forests. From 1820 to 1920, 97% of old growth forests were clear cut. Settlers could buy acres of quote unquote virgin timberland cheaply, building extreme wealth while destroying centuries old forests. The clear cut lands were developed and rains washed away soil. It takes hundreds of years to develop one inch of topsoil. The federal government created land grant colleges like Michigan State University to give away the ravaged clear cut land and convert it for agriculture. The total value of Michigan's lumber, the Green Rush, was higher than the value of California's Gold Rush. The forests were sacred living beings and kin become commodities. Not incidentally, alcohol treaties were signed by natives who were intentionally inebriated during the negotiations, ceding nearly all of Michigan's land at the dawn of the lumber era. In the 1870s, children were forcibly removed from their homes, placed in boarding schools where they were sexually and emotionally abused, and strategically stripped of their culture and language. The land was being raped as the native children were. At the same time, barbed wire became popularly available, creating borders and large-scale enclosures of prairies out west. Maybe if the United States knew more about this period in history, it wouldn't be supporting Jair Bolsonaro, a fascist Brazilian president who was clear-cutting the Amazon and kicking natives off that land. Or maybe the U.S. public wouldn't allow children to be separated from their parents and abused like private detention facilities in the southwestern United States. Once the pine ran out, capitalists began using trains to carry hardwoods that didn't float. Secondary companies and businesses for stagecoaches, furniture, and other value-added products flourished. The money that built lumber towns like Saginaw, Bay City, Muskegon helped jumpstart the industrialization of Michigan, leading to the gilded age of American capitalism and transitioning into economy dominated by the nascent auto industry. All of this industrial activity polluted the rivers of, the Amer of America, resulting in a time where the lakes and their tributaries were considered public sewers waste disposal and waste disposal lagoons. Dirty rivers were considered a sign of prosperity. It's a quote from John Hartig. Um, this was exacerbated by industrial agriculture further separating people from their food, polluting the rivers that they depend on. Not even water is sacred. It too has become a commodity. Renaming Detroit for a day is a beautiful and necessary act of language and cultural preservation. In indigen uh, in indigenous peoples have been fighting back from annihilation with languages formed in environments that sparsely exist. 
while neither is gone, the damage to both has been enormous. The history of this land and its native people is available in books and online, yet it's seldom taught in schools. Not only have natives fought through genocide, they are regularly fighting U.S. historical amnesia. While many of these lands of the, while, the, uh, while, we, while many of these uh, are the lands of the Anishinaabe, few actually know the, ne the land of this place we call Detroit, Wobiatinong. Young people are taught that their history goes back to the Greeks and Romans. We can name city-states from there 10,000 years ago. But many of us cannot name this land, which has only been Detroit for 300 years. Similarly, students know about the great forests and abundant wetlands. Uh, students don't know about the great forests and abundant wetlands that came before Detroit. The initiative to rename the city's Indigenous Peoples Day does not rewrite the textbooks or decolonize the land. It won't bring back peak white pine forests or the wetlands that, uh, that clear our water and certainly won't make topsoil, but slowly, inch by inch, we can retake the public space that is our collective consciousness. Hey everybody, Carl here, just in the middle to tell you a little bit about the project that we are pursuing along with support from the Forum for Theological Exploration. Motor City Villages is a chance for us to recruit, train, and place young students of color for the creation of intentional Christian communities for the purposes of vocational and spiritual discernment. We're really looking forward to this fall where we'll get our first chance to see some of this in action all the way through next June of 2021. So if you have a student at any campus in Metro Detroit, we'd love to get to know them and to tell them a little bit about how we could support them in calling a group of students together, creating a rule of life, pursuing justice and equity work, and doing the discernment around all of that experience that helps them claim God's call in their life. Be in touch with us at MotorCityWesley.org if there's a student in your neck of the woods that we should meet and call them into this mission field of Motor City Villages. We're at MotorCityWesley.org. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Antonio, for sharing that, mm -hmm. uh, for writing and for sharing it again with us. So we're going to ask you a few questions that we've prepared now, and then we'll open it up. Um, one of the questions that I'm wondering about, I know you've done a lot of study um, in order to be able to write a piece like that, and I'm also wondering about the particular relationships uh, or connections that you've, that you've built that went into your ability to write that piece. Um, yeah. So... I think I started getting to know the land in Detroit with my grandma, you know? I think my relationship with the land began out of like joy and love. My grandma's from Puerto Rico. She's what you call a hibaro. And that means like kind of like, it means like Puerto Rican, like hillbilly kind of is the term. Um, and she would take us to the metro parks, climbing, walking, digging through rivers and stuff like that. She's a woman who was the oldest in her family and didn't have necessarily a childhood as much. She was raising her siblings. So I think like my introduction to land came from my grandma in a lot of ways. Um, and like my d deep desire to like build on land and with peoples. Um, and then when I came back to Detroit and I was doing all this activism work and the education work, I helped co-found this collective called the Rise Up, which is like a Chicano indigenous hip hop in our collective. We were active from 2012 till about 2016 or 17 when we ended uh, Indigenous Peoples Day in Detroit. Um, and it was through that 
cultural organizing that it came to build relationships with native people in Detroit, other native people. Um, you know, I heard their creation story. I began to like dig into that work quite a bit more. Um, then I started doing a bit of agriculture on my own, kind of digging into the soil in my backyard. And then um, I, don't know, I became disillusioned with the nonprofit industrial complex and activism work. And I just started doing more land-based work, uh, harvesting wild rice, uh, attending things like the intercultural or the intertribal food summits that a friend of mine helps put on. Um, and then I just really began to do more and more project-based work with native communities throughout the Great Lakes. Um, I've always had a particular interest in history, and I've always just kind of growing up in Detroit being like one of the most racially and class segregated communities in the United States and like going to school, living in the city, going to school in the suburbs or high school, I always wanted to know why things came to be the way they are. And I did a lot of digging to that in like high school, but then it kind of made me think like longer term, like how did things get to be this way? Like I remember walking around the riverfront, uh, there's like a restored wetland uh, on the east side of the riverfront where there's like, um, and I, I just like would go there and I'd be fishing with my friend friends like Shane or Baba Baxter and I'd just like close my eyes and try and imagine what things were like, you know, 300 years ago. Um, and I, I just don't see enough representation of what that looked like. Uh, another big project that got me digging into the history really deeply was um, Del Rey. I was on the, from 2012 to about 2015, I was on the board of the Community Benefits Coalition of Del Rey. And community benefits are like nationally something that plays a really important part in the conversation around gentrification and urban renewal and the development of uh, cities. As we're seeing like the, the push and the movement away from rural communities to urban places more and more across the entire world. And that phenomenon we describe here is like often is gentrification. Um, but like wanting to dig in deeper and kind of like understand the broader history is like just really the biggest part of for me. Like, I just wanted to know more and not finding it in common history, I think is, like, mm -hmm. the you. short answer. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, in your article, you talk about the renaming of Detroit on Indigenous Peoples Day uh, this past year, and you say it's a part of the beautiful and necessary act of language and cultural preservation. Yeah. Can you talk about other ways you're seeing this work being done other than just that one, what you say is like kind of superficial, like what's, what's also behind it? Yeah. So I, I focus so much on this article about like the history of the land and how the history of land coincides with like the history of indigenous peoples and the way, I think this is like an interesting exercise that you could do. Like if you were to imagine like the Americas over the last 500 years, you have a top-down view of the Americas. In say, like over the land, you had like a bubble of the most popular language in that area of the people who live there and kind of have sovereignty over the land. And if you would like, if you were to look at, I guess a lot of people think that native peoples weren't shaping the land, which is not true. Like if you were to watch like those early 120 or so years or 200 years, whatever, if you go further back, native people have been like shaping the American landscape forever. Like the, we didn't come into a place where it was like, native people running through the wild, hunter-gathering. Like, these people, like, built the Great Plains by setting them on fire every year. They would burn the forests. I mean, Michigan forests were almost, like, entirely white pine, if you look at maps. We're talking about, like, 
10 feet wide, 200 feet tall, white pines covered a lot of Michigan. And those white pines are there because the native people would fire the, the land for various reasons, for hunting, um, for berry collection, for so many reasons. And it's like, so if you were to like look at this image of, you'd see the, the lands being set on fire regularly. And you'd see that change. You'd see the Great Plains get developed. You know, you'd see like the, the glaciers moving away, native people kind of setting in and, and editing and changing the land. Um, and you'd see like, you know, again, languages over that. And then you'd see like the first bubble of English in Jamestown. You'd see the first bubble of Spanish in um, Puerto Rico. And you'd see those bubbles expand. And as they expanded, the, one of the first things they did was clear cut the land. Um, they like for instance, the, the Spanish, they introduced pigs. Uh, and pigs, there's no fences. Like, with it, like Native American agriculture couldn't deal with pigs. Literally, pigs go everywhere. They uproot vegetables and crops. This is like a, a huge plague and contagion upon agriculture. So like pigs come, trees are getting chopped down. I mean, like, if you, uh, all that is to say is fast forward through time. English, Portuguese, and Spanish sovereignty on land looks like cancer. It looks like a clear cutting of the land and like the development of industry, the clear cutting of forests, the elimination of wetlands, like the blockage of arteries. Mm. You know, we see a lot of like heart issues in our society. Um, the dominance of fire and metal, you know, I think is like a big part of like, could be correlated to like the patriarchal sort of nature of our society. Um, so all that is to say, like you're just looking at the history of land and then looking at the culture and the time we exist in now, and even like our language, just our language alone, the everyday words we have to describe things, like there's a lot of things we don't have words for in this language. And you know, I say cultural and language preservation because languages are dying at a rate like faster than land mammals. I think there's something like, and this statistic might be off, I haven't like looked at it in a while, I think it's something like 4,000 languages or something like that that are spoken in the world. By 2100, they're supposed to be like half. Half. It's like crazy. Like, la world languages are dying at a rate level like land mammals. I mean, it's, it's nuts what's happening all over the world right now. And the world is screaming. Uh, and we're not like slowing down enough. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Heavy topic. <laughs> One of the things that was really um, powerful to see with the transition to Indigenous Peoples Day um, was the interaction of art, civil disobedience, community, and advocacy um, in that sort of long process. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that and the way that those that work is connected and all important to yeah. the work. I, I think like artists and poets have like clarity of mind uh, especially poets I think like nobody could like crystallize the times or like accurately talk about like the world better than like poets I think poets are like necessary for us to like see ourselves and see the world clearly um, just as much as like scientists and just as much as like writers and researchers um so it's a lot of poets who were involved in the Rise Up work. There's a lot of MCs. There's like a lot of music that was a part of this work. And a lot of this work also came like through wanting to like 
bring together a common consciousness among the community through popular education stuff. And artwork has the unique ability to bring people together in ways that community organizing doesn't. Almost like food and art are like the two best ways to bring humans together. Um, so like to me, like culture is also like one of the few things that we can control. Like we can't stop the water shutoffs from happening in Detroit right now, you know, like although recently the People's Water Board and a bunch of environment organizations issued like a, a demand for the governor to stop the water shutoffs because of the coronavirus crises. Um, and like, you know, hopefully, but like um, we can't control, you know, people getting evicted at an enormous rate. You know, 180,000 over the last 10 years, African-American people in a city of 200,000, or a city of, yeah, 200,000 people. Um, hold on, no. 700,000. 700,000 people. Um, so, yeah, like, we can control culture. We can control what we celebrate. We can control the way we express ourselves creatively. You know, the languages and things that we support in our work. Um, and I think centering Native communities, remembering the, the name of this place, it plays a role in centering that language at a time where Native language revitalization is such an important part of, and it's such an important conversation happening all over uh, in this place, in the Anishinaabe country here. Um, I wonder, especially since we're on a college campus and with some students, if sort of what you would say is really important work that we need to be doing right now, um, particularly for students, but for all of us, too. Mm. I would say, like, a lot of it is self-work, honestly. Like, you don't have to, like, there's a lot of work to be done in the world, and I would say, like, pick an issue and stick to it and go hard in it and, like, connect with people, vote for Bernie Sanders. Like, all <laughs> these things are, like, important and good to do, you know, but I think there's a lot of self-work to do. Like, who are you? Who are your people? Where do you come from? Why did your family leave the place that you came from? You know, what did your family do here? You know, how does your family uniquely fit into the history of this place? Only 318 years. For those of you who are European American, there, you have so much paperwork to look at and, and like inspect. It's such a huge privilege that those of us who are dark-skinned, some of us came here through a bill of sale and it's much, much harder to dig into our ancestry. So like do that self-work of see where you come from and see how like the I mean, even just like, look at your parents. What sort of work did they do? Are those jobs available anymore? What kind of jobs are your children going to be doing? You know, look as far back as you can and figure out what was happening then, and then look, look forward seven generations as indigenous people are, are in this era call us to do, and start thinking that, about that quite a bit more. I mean, like, we, we're like 20 years away from screens being gone. Computers are going to be in our brains in that time frame the kids that we're raising are gonna grow up without screens after a little while, which is maybe great in some ways, horrifying in other ways. I mean, this, you know, this world is changing fast, super, super fast. And if you don't know where you come from, if you don't have a relationship to that, I think it's gonna be a lot easier to support Buttigieg in this election or whoever to step down, whatever like fate, full continuation of mediocrity Americanness that like is coming forward. I think that another piece that's really, really important is think about the United States relationship with the world. We, we're a monolinguistic society. We speak one language. And as I mentioned, like 
there's a correlation between like the flattening and erasure of languages and the elimination of eco ecological places. So like, think about the United States relationship in the world. All of our tax dollars go to pay that. Our country is bombing no less than nine countries right now. We're, we are overthrowing governments in many more places right now actively, pretty recently in Brazil. I think that Brazil piece is super relevant to know about. The word is geopolitics. Look it up. <laughs> Look up it up online. Think about it because there's just so. No. <laughs> the United States is a fucked up place. <laughs> All right, like it's a fucked up place. And if you don't have any idea about like what it's doing in the world, like how are you going to like behave in a way that might fix that? You're gonna. Some of you guys will be parents, right? I mean, like if you're not like raising your kids to be anti-imperialists you're gonna raise them to contribute to this system. I don't know. So just do that self-work. This is a lot of self-work. Like, and then choose an issue and work on it. Thank you for all that. Um, one last question from our end, which is just about um, land acknowledgements in general, sort of bringing it back. Like, for any of us who are um, tasked with like doing a land acknowledgement or want to be doing one, but don't necessarily have like the space of two pages in a magazine, what do you? What are some things to think about when you're when you're writing one or when you're um, just like doing it for yourself to know the place that you're on? Yeah, there's like an app you can buy online. It's like whose land is am I on or something like that. Like where you, anywhere you can go, there's an app you can find out whose Native American land you're on. Um, when I do talks in different places, I often start by asking people, whose land are we on? Like, do you guys know? You'd be surprised by how many people you don't, don't know in different places. So I think that's a really great place to start, It's just always being aware of it. The long-term goal, ultimately, is, for me as an indigenous person, is decolonization. Imagining a post-colonial sovereignty over land. Um, so that's like a long way away, involves a lot of complicated things about like what happens to the current society. I don't, I'm not asking you to do that everywhere. That's not necessarily something you need to imagine and think about. But it's just starting with like, who are the native people of the land we're on? How is it that we can articulate ourselves to them and that sovereignty? How is that possible? Naming them and their language and their people is one way. Being present in their ceremonies, cultures, and communities is another way. Doing land-based work in your own way, being a good steward of whatever land you own or are connected with is, a, is another really good way. Um, thinking long-term, seven generations ahead and seven generations past is another great way to be a considerate human being and thus perhaps be morally in line with some of these communities that we're talking about. Um, and if you are ever trying to build relations with native communities, I would say like, don't start by asking, start by giving and being present. One of the big differences between our society and indigenous cultures is indigenous cultures are gift-based cultures. In order to be a leader in those societies, your value, your role is measured based on like how much you can give to your communities for free. And like that sort of like orientation towards other people and community and each other uh, is a huge, important way paradigm shift in like economic and communal and resource arrangements. So think about that too. Um, I have a follow-up question that relates 
Um, there's somebody who says, I want to be more aware of my town's land history. What would be a good place to start so that I can be sure I am getting the most accurate background possible? Um, so instead of just going to Google yeah. to find what, how do we connect with the indigenous groups that you're referencing? Yeah, so there are like... I'd say do your homework before reaching out to them, but there are 12 federally recognized tribes all over the state of Michigan that have historians, tribal historians in their communities that are super useful. Um, but I'd say do your homework first. Like every city has like really awesome archives actually. You'd be surprised. Like here in Detroit, there's like the Detroit uh, Historical Society and there's like historical museums. Like a lot of Michigan history outside of Detroit, even in Detroit, kind of parallels those things I discussed. Like, after 1830, lumber towns all over started. They clear-cut the forest. Those became cities. Flint, Saginaw, Bay City. Like, Native peoples lived on water, always. Water was their roads. It was like a primary path. There was walking and stuff like that. There were trails, but water is like one of the main ways of getting places, trading, and communicating. So like native people lived up water, up water, up waterways that led out to lakes. So like up those waterways is where you'll find native community sites. Incidentally, not incidentally, those lumber towns are built right on top of old native communities. So like um, in Flint and uh, what is that? Uh, Grand Rapids and all of these places, those are pretty much built right on top of native communities. Like because they were already cleared out. If you're starting a lumber camp, you go to the place where people had houses and were cleared out. So you can like, the, the central towns of most places, I mean, if you look at like the freeways of Michigan, they're on top of like old native trails. We walk the lands and walk in the towns of these places and they have names and they have histories and a lot of that history starts with lumber in Michigan and then moves to industrial diversity, and then your parents probably came to work in the factories that were created from that. So situating yourself within that, I think, is a good, useful way to think about history. And so for people who aren't in Michigan, it sounds like look for your, your uh, historical societies and museums and probably libraries. Yeah, and then just like think about the history of land. Think about like how people came to that area, like what brought them in. Uh, yeah. History, it's just the history of land is like where you'll find it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we have another question here. Um, this person says, I want to be more aware. Oh, sorry, I read this. Um, where does the name Detroit come from? Why change it when other cities and places in the Midwest still have the original name? So, Detroit's name was only, ch it only changes for a day on Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's a ceremonial thing that doesn't necessarily like isn't out here enough as it could be or should be, you know, like, I would love it if, like, the city government changed their website for a day or some crazy <laughs> shit, you know, like, I don't know exactly how it looks for it, like, to be more meaningful, um, but it's just a tiny gesture, honestly, like, that's something that's, like, a really quick cultural victory for us, um, I think not all places have, like, it's hard to find names of places from people who are displaced from those places, um, there are like names for regions. <coughs> a lot of the names that were are particularly related to like what sort of trees and forests and like resources were here. And those are, this is like, you know, it's like great fishing spot, you know, or like places where there's a ton of cedar, you know. Um, and that's like not like available to a lot of folks, them, like native people included. 
Um, I don't know, this is like, I don't know, it's tough. Like, the language stuff is really, really tough. Like, I, I don't necessarily know that's anybody's, like, part to, like, be supporting language revitalization. It's got to have something that's got to be, like, directly within Native American communities. But I would say those efforts are happening all across the country. And they're super, super important to support. And, like, if you can fund or get to know it all. There's a lot of, like, there's Ojibwe dictionary online. You can find any word. You can find it out on the Ojibwe dictionary, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. 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 I don't know if that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Um, and then we have another question here. What are the environmental issues in oh, Detroit Oh, sorry, today? there's one more question. Oh, okay. She asked, like, where did Detroit come from? It's a French word. It means straight. So the Detroit River is not actually a river. It's a straight. La Detroit to Lac Erie. It's like, <laughs> means, like, the straight to Lake Erie. And that's, like, the Detroit, where Detroit comes from. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, so our last question here, unless anyone has one. Um, what are the environmental issues in Detroit today? Are these issues ignored, or what action is taking place? In the metro Detroit area, there are 7,000 contaminated sites and brownfields. That's like a good place to start off with. <laughs> Just very recently, there was a factory that was owned by this rich dude where they had this thing called hexavalent chromium, where he had it in the basement of this place, slowly leaking out in these like pools, and it essentially oozed out onto the freeway pretty recently. Another recent environmental issue is like we have all these brown fields along the water where these in old industrial sawmills were, which then became like industrial shipping. Shipping always happens on waterways. Detroit was a prominent place uh, to ship out to the Atlantic. Um, and like there was this place that was used during the atom bomb testing and that recently sunk underwater because the guy who owned it, like, uh, Detroit Bulk Storage, like, had too much weight on it, and it literally sunk because the water, the waters are rising in the Great Lakes. That's another issue, the le water levels in the Great Lakes. I'm going to speak bigger than Detroit. Um, the water levels in the Great Lakes because of climate change, it was actually predicted that the water levels would go down, but we've had huge snow events in the Great Lakes water basin that have led to water rising, so there's a lot of erosion happening. Runoff from agriculture is another huge problem in all of Michigan. Almost every year, Lake Erie, because of the phosphates from in nitrogens that are heavily used in agriculture and because there are no wetlands to hold those nutrients, that water washes from farm fields into rivers, into the lakes, and Lake Erie uh, goes through a toxic algal bloom every year where there's hypoxia in the water. Essentially, there's not enough oxygen in the water for fish and life to survive, which literally kills Lake Erie and uh, causes um, massive like fish die-offs and like Toledo and all these cities have to shut their water down for parts of the year. We have uh, just recently, there was on Lake Michigan, I think, was Soxing, there's like a tribe that fought off nuclear storage that was supposed to happen on Lake Michigan. There's all sorts of mines in the Upper Peninsula that are being talked about. Um, obviously, forestry is still happening at an alarming rate. Um, 48217 is one of the most polluted zip codes in the country. It's the southwest of southwest. If you look at a map of Detroit, there's like a little foot something, for lack of a better word, on the right side. Uh, it's like a little nub, and that nub is... Um, in this really like polluted place that's processing tar sands. 
uh, marathons over there, that refinery is over there. They just had a $9 billion expansion. There's enormous lead issues, which are related, related to governance issues. Like in the case of Flint, the Flint water crisis was caused by that same guy who was taking over Detroit during the bankruptcy when I graduated college. That same person cut Flint off from Detroit's water, which led to the poisoning of Flint. So there's a broader democracy challenge that's leading to environmental issues. Um, there's still an epic amount of lead paint all over these old homes. Mike Duggan has been misusing funds that are meant to support families who lost their houses during the crisis to tear down homes. And the tearing down, the earnest, quick, rapid tearing down of those homes is leading to a lead in soil crisis in the city. Obviously, there's lead pipes in schools that are kind of polluting. And then just like air, toxic air from both the freeways and the industrial stuff that's happening on um, in 42 and 7. There's also like industry on the east side. Those are some of them. <laughs> there's a lot more if you think more broadly about the Great Lakes, but like just that's kind of Detroit and some of the bigger ones in the Great Lakes. Um, there's no shortage of environmental fights and struggles for you to jump in and on if you're interested. And, I, and certainly, like, you could follow me on Instagram. I'll let you know who's doing what if you're curious about any one of those issue areas. My Instagram is SWDetroitJesus. You can follow me on Instagram, SWDetroitJesus. Yeah. My mom really wants me to change my Instagram name. She just thinks it's disrespectful. <laughs> my whole thing is, like, Jesus was brown, Mom. Like, trying to decenter the iconoclastic and recenter a brown face with Jesus. It's a joke. All my ki all my neighborly friends were calling calling me Jesus for a while, so I just kind of like took the name from them. Thank you. Any last questions? Well, I feel a lot of uh, gratitude, and one of the things that we were talking about with the students before we started was sort of thinking about our own land and where we come from and. Um, one of the things that I was reflecting on and, and feeling the grief even more deeply in sort of listening to you talk about the way indigenous communities move along water um, is the, the violence in Detroit of how we've piped all of our rivers and streams um, into pipes and we've lost that and um, through our neighborhood it was Bobby Creek back in the day and so I like to try to remember um, remember its name and, and feel a lot of gratitude that our um, paths are connected um, along Bobby Creek and just want to say thank you for the, the constant ways that you gift communities with your wisdom and um, hope and commit that we can gift you back in return so yeah. thank you for well, thank you guys today. appreciate you and I just also want to say like I, I love the Wiley Kellermans like uh <laughs> Your mother was like a, a beacon of beauty and like joyous and wonderful woman. And I knew you guys when you were young. We went to the same grade school, and they're part of like a long-standing like Catholic peace community in Detroit. Uh, and I think like those histories of like ab white abolitionists, white anti-war working, like European American people who are doing the work in a beautiful way need to be uplifted and celebrated more. Uh, alternative histories that include like 
beautiful resistance work has to be uplifted. So I just wanted to uplift you all. I've like gotten arrested with your father, watched him get arrested. We've done like, tried to shut down city council together, shut down the roads together. Um, so I, I celebrate and uplift the work that you two are doing, which is in line with your ancestry and your parents and your family. And I think it's a beautiful example of like intergenerational resistance and organizing, and I love it, and thank you. Uproar is the brainchild of Samson Koba III. Thanks, Sam, for getting us launched on this last year. It also is our place for continuing to tell the stories of students conspiring for goodness from the heart of the city of Detroit. We hope that you'll support us at MotorCityWesley.org for as little as a dollar a month for individuals and $40 a month for churches who would like to be a part of our network of young adult faith communities around Metro Detroit. Just get in touch with us, MotorCityWesley.org. We're looking to conspire with you. Cheers. <laughs>